I, I know the movie takes place in Japan, but this is before Scarlett Johansson was Japanese. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's with a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be uh, I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, uh, to kind of get us all ready for uh, the new release of The Beguiled, we are taking a look at one of Sofia Coppola's earlier movies, Lost in Translation, and the theme we will be tackling is social intimacy. And to do that, I have a return guest. I have David Shreve of audienceseverywhere.net. So thank you for coming back once again. Thanks for some for some reason, for inviting me back once again. <laughs> Absolutely, no problem at all. So before we kind of get into things here, why don't you tell people about Audiences Everywhere and maybe even some of your writing that's up there? Yeah, um, Audiences Everywhere is a website I started in 2014 to sort of be an antidote to, I'm sure your um, recurring listeners know this because I do this every time that I come on. Um, but if they would just spread the word to their friends, I wouldn't have to do this ad coffee. <laughs> so... Audience Server is a website I started as sort of an antidote to some of the more dreary and cynical and embittered and exclusionary film criticism that exists on the internet today. Uh, you and I both know you work on a podcast, I work on a website, we know that there's a lot of white noise in online discourse about films, and um, it's somewhat exclusionary, and it can be very mean, and it can be very cruel-hearted towards movies. Um, so I wanted to start a website that embraced and elevated diverse voices, um, from gender, sexuality, uh, class, all across the spectrum, ethnicity. I try to elevate only quality voices and people who have unique perspective about movies and uh, make it an even playing field in a way that keeps film as a celebratory event. So it's uh, www.audienceseverywhere.net and we are on Twitter at We Talk Movies and a few other social media sites that you'll have to find on your own because I don't keep track of those. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I'm definitely biased because I have written a few articles for oh, audiences yes. everywhere, yes, but, but it is one of my, one of my favorite, it was even one of my favorite uh, kind of movie websites even before I started writing for them, so I would definitely recommend you check out audienceseverywhere.net. There's kind of a little bit of everything for everyone, no matter what kind of movie fan you are, so definitely check that out. And when my URL registration expires, we might switch to twobrilliantdaves.net. Ah, oh, uh, perfect. Could happen. <laughs> If, if I don't renew quickly enough, that will be our backup brand if you can't find us in two years. Perfect. All right. Um, so before I get into the psychology and all of that good stuff, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I do. Uh, given that our theme is social intimacy this week and our focal point of our discussion is going to be um, the Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, the immediate comparison to me every time I watch this movie, which is now three times, um, is the Before trilogy by Richard Linklater. Mm. But I think that your um, listeners are probably sophisticated enough, particularly if they're interested in Sofia Coppola's film, that they've probably seen those three movies. So I'm taking those off the table. Okay. And I'm going to recommend two films that are similar to those that deal distinctly with social intimacy. Um, the first is from 2014, 2015. It depends on where you place it. Um, but it's a movie you and I have discussed before. It's uh, Spring from the directors Ooh. Justin Vincent and Aaron Moorhead. 
um, kind of the similar vein as Lost in Translation. It's a travel narrative that becomes a romance that in this case is a horror story, um, but the horror doesn't override the romantic or intimate elements. And my second suggestion is from 2013, because apparently I've only watched movies from this decade. <laughs> and it's uh, 2013's The Spectacular Now from director mm-hmm. James Ponsoldt. Um, a small-time indie romance, com- not really comedy, but a small-time indie romance starring Shailene Woodley and Miles Teller, uh, which I find to be a very truthful and honest and earnest, intimate movie. Yeah, that was actually a movie that we were supposed to cover earlier this year and just, like, scheduling kind of got in the way, but, like, yeah. just a fantastic movie. Like, one of those movies that when it came out, I just kind of ignored it because I was like, ah, eh, it doesn't look that interesting to me, and then saw it after the fact and was like, what was I mm-hmm. thinking? Like, it's definitely, definitely worth watching. In spring, we've talked about, and we talked about in the show a couple weeks ago, and I highly recommend everyone find a way to go see that. I mean, I think it's on uh, Amazon video, like you might have to it's rent Amazon it, Prime, yeah. but it's so worth it. It's so fantastic. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny that you bring up the before trilogy as well, because spring has been, at least in kind of my circle of friends on Twitter, had actually been compared to the before trilogy and how that, how that movie kind of works. So except like you said, in the horror vein uh, and not just purely romance, but yeah, those are two right. great recommendations. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Good. All right, uh, so we are going to take a quick break, and then I will talk about social intimacy, and then we'll bring David Shreve back to talk about Lost in Translation. Hey, everyone. I'm Jason Michael. And I'm Lee Brady, and we're the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. We're a podcast that looks to analyze what makes films great with a warm atmosphere and a good laugh. New releases, retrospectives, and absolute classics all reassessed and reviewed. You can find the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio. And if you're looking for a more direct approach, you can find us on Twitter. Just look for Jason Michael at Atlantic SC and Lee Brady at Big Pick Reviews. Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection podcast. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. So today we're talking about social intimacy, and that's just kind of the connection two people have when they're in any kind of intimate relationship. So let's go over what an intimate relationship actually is, because I think when people say those words, they think of a sexual relationship, and there's much more to it than that. So an intimate relationship is just an interpersonal relationship that involves either physical or emotional intimacy. Physical intimacy is characterized by friendship, romantic love, platonic love, or sexual activity, while the term intimate relationship implies the inclusion of a sexual relationship. Intimate relationships play a really important role in our human experience. We have generally a desire to belong and to love, which is usually satisfied within these intimate relationships. These relationships involve feelings of loving or liking one or more people, um, sometimes romance, Uh, sometimes physical or sexual attraction, sexual relationships, or emotional support between the members. And I think in this movie, you could argue for a lot of these things between our two main characters played by Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Intimate relationships also allow a social network for people to form stronger emotional attachments. All right, so let's go over the types. So there's basically four different types of intimacy, physical, emotional, cognitive, and experiential. Physical intimacy is what they call sensual proximity or touching. Uh, This could include uh, being inside a person's personal space, holding hands, kissing, hugging, and other sexual activity. 
Emotional intimacy, especially within sexual relationships, develops after a certain level of trust has been reached, and then the personal bonds have been more firmly established. So actually, the physical stuff comes first, and the emotional stuff usually comes second. However, the emotional connection of quote-unquote falling in love has two things. One, a biochemical part. Um, So reactions in the body are stimulated by sexual attraction and a social dimension driven by kind of talk that follows from regular physical closeness or a sexual union. Now, cognitive or intellectual intimacy takes place when two people exchange thoughts, ideas, and have similarities and differences between their opinions. And if they can do this in a really comfortable and open way, they can actually become intimate intellectually. Experiential intimacy is when two people get together to involve themselves actively with one another, probably saying very little to each other and not sharing thoughts or feelings, but being involved in mutual activities with one another. So if you saw the example this article gives, if you saw two house painters and their brushstrokes seem to be, you know, working together almost in concert, they are, they have experiential intimacy. Although they're not talking, they're not holding hands, they're not connecting, there is an intimacy there. Now, because those, these relationships are so important, there's always going to be lots of studies out there. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of some of the studies that are out there. So luckily, the study of intimate relationships now uses participants from really wide and diverse groups and cover a wide variety of topics, too, that include family relationships, friendships, and romantic relationships. Uh, These current studies also include both positive and negative or unpleasant aspects of relationships where they used to just look at the positives. Uh, So research being conducted by probably the most famous intimate relationship uh, researcher is John Gottman, and this is from 2010. And they invited married couples into what they called a pleasant setting where they would revisit a disagreement that caused their last argument that they both remember. So they're all being videotaped and the participants are aware, but Despite this, they soon become so connected with this interaction that they forget they're being recorded and just they, they be themselves, the, the argument gets brought up, all, all the emotions come up again. And then they do like a lot of really detailed analysis. It's like second by second. And they look at the observable reactions as well as the emotional ones. And they, they found that actually Gottman is able to predict with 93% accuracy the fate of the couple's relationship, whether within six months from now they'll be together or they will have broken up. Now, another area of research into these intimate relationships uh, is from Orbuck and Veroff in 2002, and they would take a look at newlywed couples using self-report stuff over a long period of time, so it's a longitudinal study, and they had to provide extensive reports about the nature and status of their relationship. Now, although a lot of these marriages have actually ended since the beginning of the study, this type of study, what it really does is allows us as researchers to track marriages from start to finish by conducting these follow-up interviews with the participants. And this determines which factors are associated with marriages that last and which ones are associated with marriages that end in divorce. So the field of relationship science is actually pretty young, um, but uh, the field is getting broadened because we have research con- research conducted by researchers from many different di- disciplines. Evidence also points to the role of a number of kind of contextual factors that impact intimate relationships. So they actually did a study um, on the impact of Hurricane Katrina, of all things, on marital and partner relationships. And um, a lot of people reported negative changes in their relationships, um, but also a number of them also experienced positive changes after Katrina. 
So when Hurricane Katrina happened, there were a lot of environmental stressors. So uh, being separated from from your partner, um, not being able to find a job, having less money, all these kinds of stressors. And of course, these negatively impacted the intimate relationships for a lot of couples. But actually, some couples grew stronger as a result of being forced, being forced into new employment opportunities and getting a perspective on life and feeling like because you have to, um, they're communicating and supporting each other more. So you have to understand that these environmental factors do contribute heavily, but depending on the relationship, it can go in either direction. Um, and one study actually suggested that married straight couples and cohabitating gay and lesbian couples in these long-term intimate monogamous relationships tend to pick up on each other's unhealthy habits. And I think anyone who has been in a long-term relationship, this should not surprise you at all. We pick up habits from our partners, both healthy and unhealthy. But this study was focused on the unhealthy, and they found three distinct findings that these habits are are picked up through the direct bad influence of one partner, through a synchronicity of health habits, which is what I was just talking about, and through the notion of personal responsibility. Like, I'm responsible for this person, so we should be doing the same things. All right, so this article we're about to look at is looking at comparing men's conflict with gender role and how it's related to social intimacy and self-esteem. Uh, this is from a bunch of authors um, in 2001. So in the psychological field, we are starting to recognize that this restrictive masculine gender role actually contributes to men's psychological distress. A lot of recent research has shown that men's gender role conflict is associated with a wide range of psychological health variables. For instance, it's reported to relate to lower self-esteem, um, lower levels of intimacy, higher anxiety and depression, substance abuse, and just general psychological distress. So the purpose of their study was to take a look at how both this conflict and a person's, and a person's nationality, um, how it affects the relationship towards your psychological well-being. So in this study, what they did is they just they found 183 men and gave them, and gave them the materials here. So they gave them a bunch of measures. Um, one of them was the gender role conflict scale. Of course, that is taking a look at gender role conflict. And then they measured their level of int intimacy using something called the Miller Social Intimacy Scale. And then they measured their self-esteem using the Coopersmith Self-Esteem Inventory, which is this 25-item test that assess a person's self-esteem in personal, family, academic, and social areas. The really cool thing about this is they did this test a couple times. They did it with an American group and an Australian group, and they actually had um, two groups within those two groups, so four groups groups total. So you had college-age Americans and middle-age Americans and college-age Australians and middle-age Australians. And the reason they did that is that idea of gender role is a social construct, and it comes from the culture of which you're a part of. So and here's what they found. There are two very significant interaction effects between one age group and social intimacy, and B, nationality and self-esteem. So that first one indicates that this restrictive affectionate behavior as men that we have was related to, to more social intimacy for middle-aged men, but much less for college-aged men. And they also found that the college-aged men had more, more, of this restrictive, uh, more of this restrictive gender role playing a part. And the other interesting part is they found that the more they associated with their nationality, the higher self-esteem they had. And that makes a little bit of sense to me, too, that the fact that you, if you're connected with your culture, your self-esteem is going to be higher because your self-esteem, despite the name, is not just about yourself, but it's about how you interact in the world. 
So it'd be interesting to see if our two main characters, granted, we wouldn't look at, you know, uh, Scarlett Johansson's characters in terms of this kind of masculinity, but we would, it would be interesting to see um, where, where Bill Murray's character kind of ranked in this, in this area of gender role conflict. He doesn't really seem like he has a lot of conflict and is, and is really connected to that, um, to that role. And that makes sense with his age too, because he would be in the kind of late group of the, of the kind of middle-aged Americans here. So he may not connect so much with that restrictive idea. So he would end up being more intimate like the older men in this survey. All right. So that's basically it for our psychological section. I thought social intimacy would be interesting to look at because this movie with all of its problems, especially with, um, with race, uh, with culture, what it really boils down to, I think, is two people who have a lot of trouble with social intimacy, a lot of trouble with connecting. And I think that's the magic of this movie is that they, you know, in this foreign country, in this strange situation, they actually find one another and are able to truly connect, maybe for the first time in years or decades, depending on which character you're talking about. So these two people finding each other is kind of a really cool journey for us to go on. And I think the theme of social intimacy will really help us take a closer look at Lost in Translation. All right, so we're going to take a break, and then we'll bring David Shreve of AudiencesEverywhere.net back to talk about Lost in Translation. Watched the movie? Check. Popped the popcorn? Check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home? Check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I <laughs> didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. We're back to talk about Lost in Translation now. So we always kind of talk about our history with these movies. Mine will be very short, uh, because this is the first time I've watched this movie. Uh, this is one of those, ah. I know it's one of those movies. that's kind of like in terms of like, you know, being on Twitter and being a movie fan, like, what do you mean you haven't seen lost in translation? It's definitely one of those kind of holes I had to fill there. Um, and I don't know why I never saw this. Like this looks like a movie that would be kind of right up my alley and I always kind of meant to see it. But then like sometimes when a movie is thought of so highly, it's, it can be really hard to access and kind of leave all of all of that kind of all the publicity behind. So I didn't want right. I didn't want to watch it in this way where everyone's like, it's the best movie ever made, so you better like it. You know, so I wanted to just kind of give it some time. And this kind of gave me an excuse to finally watch it. Uh and I found myself very, very moved by this movie. I think I think uh I think racially it's got it's got some issues and I think we'll we'll talk about that stuff. We'll kind of get into it. But I think like as a movie, like this is this is an impressive work of art from Sofia Coppola. Like I am yes, kind of stunned 
by by how amazing this movie is and it's and that's actually kind of a rarity for me like uh, the other Sofia Coppola movies I've seen I've really enjoyed but nothing that is particularly really moved me on this level so this was this was nice to kind of see see her on this level before I get to watch The Beguiled later this year but what about you what's your history with Lost in Translation? Well, first, at some point, I want you to explain to your listeners why you never let me stick around for the academic part to heckle you. Um, but my history is... I think you just answered that question. <laughs> so, you always just hit the mute button and I got to sit there and listen without heckling. Um, but my history, yeah, it's not very extensive. I saw this movie when, I was, when it came out. I was 21. Um, I wasn't the most sophisticated film fan at the time. Um, I was just blossoming into a cinephile. Uh, probably sat through it when I was 21, just going, God damn, the whole time, because Scarlett Johansson is and was beautiful. <laughs> um, and she's never been filmed better. And right. then I watched it again. This is the second time you asked me to come on the show uh, to do this. And I was happy to do it because I love being on your show. And thank you again. Um, but I got to thinking, I'm like, usually when he asks me, there's a distinct connection between myself and the conversational <laughs> material. And that's true of all your guests. Like if you have someone on, I want to hear that person specifically speak about that movie specifically, but I couldn't make the connection here. And I started getting paranoid thinking, <laughs> I started thinking, is this a trap? Is he getting me on there to talk about this movie, which is about a now known whitewasher and, <laughs> and a problematic favorite wife beater who go on this weird American centric tour through Japan that just kind of belittles the Japanese people sometimes. And I'm watching the movie this time. I'm like, this is, this is a trap. He's going to bring somebody <laughs> on woke Twitter and he's uh, just going to destroy. It. Um, this is proof that you put more thought into my show than I do. That's <laughs> one of the, so I, so I'm thinking, so anyways, then it hit me when you hit me the theme with the social intimacy. I'm like, Oh, he wants a sociopath on to talk about social intimacy. That's very interesting. I like that theme. Um, but that's generally my history. I watched it when I was 21, didn't appreciate it beyond the fact that everybody loved Scarlett Johansson back then mm -hmm. um, in the same manner that I did. And I watched it again for this time. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I probably watched it. I think I watched it twice. I tried it on a date when I was around 21 to, uh, to be all impressive and sophisticated. Hmm. That time we're not counting. And then this is the, would have been the third time I watched. And like you, I was kind of floored by the artistry that's involved in the making of this movie. Nice. All right, so I'm about to pay you a compliment. Uh, I'll probably just cut this out because I don't want people thinking that I'm I'm that nice. But actually, the reason I had you had you on for this is you are one of the few people that I feel like I can bring on for almost any movie, and you can talk intelligently about it. Like I don't feel like I need to match you with a movie because I think you are knowledgeable enough and smart enough that I can throw any movie on, whether it's Speed or Lost in Translation. I can bring David right. Trevon, and I'll be fine. So. Well, if you cut this from the podcast, can I have the clip and then I'm going to start my <laughs> own podcast and that's going to be my theme song. Sure. No problem. Yes. I, okay. I give you permission. Yes. Okay. Uh, so let's get into the direction of this movie. So this is, of course, directed uh, by Sofia Coppola. So this, generally speaking, uh, it, it almost sounds like when you were talking like this was a very different experience of watching this movie for you and kind of seeing, as you said, the artistry of the film being made. Right. So how did this kind of change for you? How has your experience in watching this changed? changed between the first and the third viewing well for scale when i was 21 i think my favorite movie was probably gladiator <laughs> um just to give it some some measurement of personal self and i i studied when i was 21 i was an english major so everything was books and it was in my english degree that i learned my love of film circumstantially through a uh, a film as literature class 
and it was far later on when I started learning about aesthetics and arrangement and boxing and framing. And so I watched this movie and I didn't think much of it. It was just this quiet, muted, boring love story that I thought would appeal to, you know, uh, quiet, muted individuals who understood movies that I don't at the time. Um, but watching it this time, like there's something there's, there's a certain high grace about the way this film is arranged. Um, there's the, the way the way that space is used, the way that sound is used and lighting is used and silent spaces is used and the sort of things that make cinema an art form rather than just a simple storytelling form. I don't I don't want to say anything about the way I, I want to stray away from the way that the Japanese people are presented. Mm-hmm. But the use of Japanese space to alienate these two American characters mm-hmm. and the use of industrial um, of, of industrial sound is so amazing the way that busy sound is used to make hollow distance in this movie it just stuck out to me a lot like uh so when i started this time i rented this movie to watch for this podcast i rented it first on voodoo and my voodoo had a bug and and the audio wasn't working and i watched three minutes of the movie without the audio working and it was still working on me because Mm -hmm. framing alone was telling the story and i didn't even realize because framing was telling the story so well to me um, and the lighting and the expressiveness and the quiet, subdued expressiveness, they were all telling the story so well to me that I didn't even realize that an element was missing, like a standard element was missing. And then I had to go rent it from Amazon and restart. <laughs> um, but there's something, something, something that 20, like 21 year old cinephiles can't catch that. I'm not saying 21 is a dumb age. I'm just saying I'm was very, I was very pedestrian at 21 in terms of movies. Um, but having, dove head first in the past decade into movies um and return to this one oh this is just an astonishingly arranged movie yeah i i'm glad you brought up like kind of the the idea of not necessarily the japanese people but the the city itself as mm-hmm. as being its own framing device for right. this movie and for these two characters because you get this sense not not just that it's different, but how overwhelming it is, and you really right. feel that kind of that crush of space and and humanity on these people, and and but you still get this lack of connection that they have with everyone there. Like they're sur- they're both kind of surrounded by people and by culture, but they they cannot connect with it or will not connect with it. So the only time you feel intimacy really in this entire film is when the two of them are together. And the rest of the time, it just becomes this this series of moments that that don't really that don't really connect on a conversational or a human level, and you're just kind of waiting for the two of them to get together for the next moment. Anytime they're apart, you feel that distance, and I think that's because of Sofia Coppola's direction. Yeah, and what's neat about that? So one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Paris, Texas. This was another one I was going to recommend, but you limit me to two because some you're a dick. <laughs> another but, fantastic movie that you uh, got me to watch. So people should yeah. watch Paris, Texas. It's incredible. And what's the, the reason I bring that movie up is because at the beginning of Paris, Texas, uh, the lead character Travis Henderson, who's been missing for years, is walking through a south uh, a South Texas desert, and he's completely lost. He's completely alienated. You could see he's broken. You could see there's just an emptiness to him. And that's reflected. The emptiness of him is reflected in the desert landscape that he's walking through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I get the same kind of feeling with Bill Murray in, the, uh, in, our, in our introduction to him in this film because he's broken, but in a different way. And it's not reflected. It's almost reverse engineered because he's in the middle of a busy uh, mm-hmm. in a busy city 
a busy city with lights flashing everywhere. He's in a car. There are people all around him, but he still has the same thing. And we see the same thing in him that we see in Travis because in Paris, Texas, because somehow Sofia Coppola can use that architecture and that lighting and all of that to create the same landscape of hollowness. And it, it, it really thudded hard on me that, that those two introductions to those two characters um, are leave the same impression. It's a lost guy who needs to rediscover intimacy somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the the scene for me that really, really hammered all this home, there's a shot where Scarlett Johansson is essentially sitting on her windowsill in this fancy hotel room, and there's this beautiful rotating shot out the window and into the city where you kind of see everything you see the city unfold and there's a certain beauty there's a certain aesthetic Mm. beauty to that shot of like oh my god look at how amazing this is but i love the fact that this is all being viewed you know through you know scarlett johansson's kind of sorrowful face in that moment and through a window like there's no once again there's no real connection to it like you see the beauty and you see that this is something that you should care about and something that you should take in and really and it's really important and yet there's this distance to it and there's this lack of connection and i thought like from a from a purely directorial perspective like that scene encapsulates everything about that character in like 30 seconds yeah yeah, it's, and, that, and she does that top, like that's that's everything in this movie and not just about the individual characters, but about their relationship is framed by her by their juxtaposition in a world in which they don't belong. Problematic just juxtaposition and sometimes probably going to say that 500 times. Yes, <laughs> it's, it gets to be a little bit problematic. It's a fish out of water story that, you know, treats the, the people of uh, Japan as if they're not actually in water. But that's fine. Um, but she does it time and time again. The, the characters are defined using cinematic expression of place as a measurement of personal distance. And I and I did not again didn't catch it at all the first time. But I'm probably going to watch that this again soon because um, because I need I need to reevaluate everything. I watched it last night and I've been sitting on it all day and just thinking about it. So. Yeah, I think I want to move to the acting here because so much of the stuff when we talk about direction, a lot of it is so connected to the performances of Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray. Because one of the the notes I've written down for the direction is how much of a master of this kind of quiet, the quiet in-between moments uh, that Coppola is in this movie. Like there is... There's there's almost more to be said in the silence and the looks than there is in the actual dialogue. Although the dialogue is wonderful and there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff there, it's the interactions that really make it work. But one of the things I kept thinking about Scarlett Johansson in this movie is how much she has changed as an actress and not necessarily for the better or for for the worse. Right. Um but I just found myself thinking like she couldn't do this now. She couldn't play this character now because Back then, she wasn't "quote unquote" ScarJo. She wasn't right. this, like this, almost like this property that has been like everywhere. You know, whether you're talking about Marvel or whatever else, like she is, she is known. Um, yeah, and, and just to clear, just to clear it for your listeners who may not know, this is. I know the movie takes place in Japan, but this is before Scarlett Johansson was Japanese. Yes, yes, so, long before she had turned yes. Japanese. It's true. All right, <laughs> the ethnicity. But yeah, so I just kept thinking, like, wow, she is. One, she looks so young and and yet has this kind of look about her that 
that you could understand why she'd be connected with a character like like Bob, like Bill Murray's character here. Right. Um, but I like that back then we kind of didn't know who she was, so we didn't have this kind of imprint of who Scarlett Johansson was. And and I think and I just kept thinking throughout this whole movie, like, man, you you look at ScarJo now in 2017, it's not as if she's like aged so much, but like there's something about her performance here that is not. It's not your cookie cutter. It's not your um, your big budget, big money performance. It is a very right. real and genuine and youthful performance. Yeah, she doesn't bring any. It's weird because she doesn't bring at the time. She didn't bring any baggage with her, um, which inversely works mm-hmm. for Bill Murray because he brings baggage with him. But they flip, they invert the expectation with him. Yeah. Um, but with her, she brought no baggage. But what's interesting is looking back at it, she still doesn't have that baggage. Like you don't watch this movie and think mm-hmm. that's Black Widow or that's no. Um, or it's like it's like a different person yeah. playing that role. Yeah. But it but it is it is very much the uh, a Rebecca from Ghost World, which I think was her yes. first role before this, maybe, yep. or maybe she did the Spider movie in between. I or, think um, yeah, I think it was Ghost World, Eight Legged Freaks, and then this. <laughs> yeah. So so she hadn't established it then, and it was just this very doe eyed. Uh, elegant um and it's funny because i thought about this too and this i'm going to try to phrase this as least sexist as possible please mm-hmm. know that i am i i have objectified scarlett johansson for i'm just going to admit that everybody has yeah um but it's funny because she's pinned against at one point in this movie um anna faris who stereotypically plays the dumb blonde hot actress she's yep. probably played the role that she plays in this movie in 17 different contexts <laughs> yes the superstar actress and it was funny thinking how Scarlett Johansson, who actually is that now, right. who is, who has become what Anna Faris is in Lost in Translation in a way, mm-hmm. um, she, it works like it, like you believe, oh, that's not Scarlett, she, not, not Charlotte, she wouldn't be that person, right? <laughs> and you, you don't even pull away during the movie and think, holy shit, Anna Faris is playing Scarlett Johansson next to Scarlett Johansson, because yeah. Scarlett Johansson completely, um. Is is at least framed, if not performing herself, into the role that she's given here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think honestly, some of my favorite uh, Scarlett Johansson moments in this movie are pure reaction. Like yeah. her her reaction to when Anna Faris's character first shows up is is comedy gold, and it's it would be really easy to overplay it. Uh, it'd be really right. easy to go over the top with the rolling of the eyes and kind of looking around like, is this really happening? But her performance in there is, it's just enough. Like, I wouldn't go as far as to call it subtle because it is meant to be noticed, but it's just on that kind of knife's, knife's edge of going too far and it never kind of tips over. I don't know how much of that is her and how much of that is direction and how much is editing, but it's like some of the most enjoyable stuff in the movie because we really... We feel that we feel her reactions when we when we see Anna Ferris's character kind of acting up when she first shows up. Like we are Charlotte in that moment. Absolutely, and I I do want to say that I think at least some of it has to be her because yeah. I want to speak specifically at some point about that particular scene where she shows up because um um I don't remember Anna Ferris's character's name in this movie, but we'll just call her Anna Ferris. Uh, <laughs> let's tells them to call her and says that I'm under Evelyn Wall. And she walks away, <laughs> and Scarlett Johan Charlotte finds that funny and just passively says, Evelyn was a man. Okay. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, arigato, arigato. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mushy, mushy. <laughs> Evelyn Wall. What? Evelyn Wall was a man. Oh, come on. She's nice. What? Not, you, know, you know, not everybody went to Yale. 
Oh, it's just a pseudonym, for Christ's sake. Why do you have to defend her? Well, why do you have to point out how stupid everybody is all the time? Mm, I thought it was funny. Forget it. <laughs> and her boyfriend takes offense to that. Yep. And in response to that, like, he, he starts being very accusatory, like, almost combatantly accusatory with her. And her response is not – it's not dismissive. It's submissive. Mm-hmm. It's her saying, I just thought it was funny. I'm sorry. Never mind. Right. And in the delivery of that line, I think any I, – I do – okay. I want to backtrack and say that I do think Scarlett Johansson is a very talented actress. Mm-hmm. And I think this this individual line is a perfect summation of how she nails this character because any other actress might have had the impulse to – hedge that line as a weapon i just thought it was funny but she doesn't she says i thought it was funny never mind because the whole point of the movie is she doesn't have anybody who will get that joke from her yeah yeah like it's a funny joke anybody who watches and appreciates lost in translation will appreciate the fact that anna ferris doesn't understand that the writer she used is a man like that yeah like the the audience of this movie knows that's funny but the people around her in this movie don't know that's funny and her submission to that point that I don't have anybody who understands my joke helps communicate the fact that what she's missing isn't people. What she's missing is connectedness. Right. And then that kind of that makes her connection to Bob make sense. And I think right. if she turns that it was I thought it was funny into a barb, like, as you said, into a weapon, then I think we lose connection with Charlotte as an audience. Right. And I think that moment, it was actually kind of moving to me, like anyone who is a kind of a uh, person who is sharp and snarky has has made a joke like that and had someone in their life go like, well, that's pretty mean. And there is that moment of like, that's kind of wounding because we feel like we're not trying to be trying to be cruel. So for and so that I think that submission, as you put it, like it's it can also be painful um, for a person like Charlotte to hear like, well, basically, like you're you're acting like a bitch. That's mean. Yeah. There's no reason. I love that, for that you use the pronoun "we" so that you classify yourself as a sharp individual, David. Sharp and snarky. Goddamn right. Yes. yes. But, I, um, I don't have high self confidence about a lot, but there are a few things. Yes, people like me and Charlotte, we understand that. That's right. But, um, <laughs> but I'm not going to be presumptuous. Uh, no, but I yeah, and, and I don't think she was looking to wound in that situation. I think that she found amusement in that situation. Right. Um, as as is probably at least snarky, if not sharp, individual myself. Um, I've been there. I've, I've made an observation that I didn't mean to be mean. I just thought it was amusing. Like it's not. She wasn't accusing the woman of being dumb. Right. The implication is applied in in retrospect. Um, she's just saying it's funny that she picked a man. And she doesn't realize it. That's not a, necessarily accusatory. I didn't feel acu- like it was accusatory when she said that. Yep. Um, because she sells the character very well. But it was in the second line that I just thought I just thought it was funny. Never mind. Is when you realize, yes, I like I know that feeling. I know what it's like that nobody can get on the same page as you, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's and and that's a realization that occurs between one sentence from you and one sentence from the other person. You realize there's a mile of gap between those two sentences. Yeah, and she, and she, the actress, puts the mile of gap in that in the in that transition. Yeah, totally agree. So when I first sat down to watch this movie, there was one thing I was worried about. Uh, and it was like, you mentioned this earlier, it was the, the Bill Murray, like kind of person, the cult of personality, uh, yeah. that, that he brings with him. Um, and you know, the, the baggage that he brings with him, but I thought this was handled so well. I think Bill Murray is an easy person to look at and be like, Oh, he's kind of the party guy and he's always having a good time. And it was a real, it was going to be a real challenge to have him be a real human being here. 
um, and to kind of access that that sadness behind the smile. But I thought his performance here is is one of his best in his, in his entire career. Yeah, I would put this in his top five at least. Um, he was nominated for this, I believe, like best lead actor um, in the Academy Awards, um, and deservedly. Uh, just to touch on that for a moment, like at this point, I guess the cult of personality that follows Bill Murray now wasn't fully developed, but it's still blossoming. And also, how tiresome would it be to be Bill Murray? You have to be the coolest room in any room that you're seen in. Like you hear the mythologies of him walking up to people, taking a bite of their food and saying no one will ever believe you yep. or interrupting the bar mitzvahs that are at the hotel or the wedding that's in the next door in the next room at the event that he's at. And he'll interrupt and he'll just do things. And I read there sometimes like, yeah, he's cool, super, super cool guy by measure of his pop culture appearances. But man, that has to be exhausting to be the like, incidentally, mm-hmm. I'm the smartest guy in every room I've ever been. And I'm not trying to be in it. It wears me the fuck out. Bill Murray has to try to be the coolest guy in every room he's be, he, he's in to keep his mythology going. That's a side note. It has nothing to do with the movie. But sometimes I think about how miserable it must be to be, to be Bill Murray. Um, but in this movie, like that's completely discarded. He's the vulnerable one kind of in this situation a little bit. Um, things aren't working out for him and his life in the life that he's escaping from uh, careers on the downslide. His name is Bob Harris, which I think is like the most standard ass movie name, you get, <laughs> right. like movie star name ever. Yeah. Like Bob Harris isn't a superstar on any shape or form. Sorry for any of your listeners who might be named Bob Harris. You're not <laughs> going to make it in the movie industry. It's not going to happen for you. It just doesn't, yeah. doesn't pop. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, he carries so much like weight of disappointment around. And, and he's come to do that a lot more since then. I think he really got involved. With, maybe it was before this, but his Jim Jarmusch films, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's brought the same sort of disenchantment with him, the same world weariness that he brings to other things now on a standard basis. But I still think this is the best that he's ever done it. That sort of, sort of things didn't work out, like tail end of life, things didn't work out. Um, I don't know how old he is supposed to be or in the movie or how old he was when he filmed it, but I think 50, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but carries a lot of that. And what's funny about this movie is that it doesn't explicitly spell disappointment out for him. It's, you just know that he is an actor and he's in Japan mm-hmm. for untraceable reasons which he, through his performance, lets you know that he just can't figure shit out and he kind of thinks it's too late. But none of that, none of that's text. And that's what's brilliant about the movie. None of it's text. It's all subtext. Yeah. Yeah. And and so much of that just comes through purely from his from his performance here. And, and like I mentioned, that kind of that sadness behind his eyes, like you get it from kind of the first moment that he shows up on screen. Like you just, you know, intrinsically that like this is not this is not a happy person. Even if right. he's being paid millions of dollars to kind of show up and, you know, drink some whiskey and talk into a camera, he is, he's so annoyed by this whole process and he's just like, he's over it. He's over a lot of things. And then you get later into the movie and you get these kind of uh, stunted interactions with his family and you really start to see like kind of how how damaged everything is in his life and how he needs someone to connect to just like Charlotte does. Right. And I, I meant to look this up before the episode. I don't know if this role was written with Bill Murray in mind. It almost had to be, right? Yeah. Like, um, and if but, it wasn't, he changed it so it basically was. Right. Because one of the things I appreciate, because you mentioned that there's a sadness to him, that he's not a happy person. But one thing I appreciate is that they allow him to be an unhappy person, but they don't hinder him from being a funny person. Right. Which I think is a mistake that a lot of 
serious Bill Murray movies make. All the Jim Jarmusch movies with Bill Murray make that mistake. They don't. Wes Anderson, on the other hand, doesn't. Wes Anderson always portrays him as a little funnier than he is sad. But Jarmusch sometimes just makes him the sad guy. But this movie let the two of those two things blend. I think in this movie that because of the Bill Murray, accepting who Bill Murray was, accepting his baggage, writing a, a role that seemed to be fit for him. If it wasn't, it was changed immediately for him mm-hmm. and letting him be who he is. He becomes an equally sad and funny person that is, the funniness comes from the sadness in this movie. A lot of his quips in this movie, a lot of things that his funniest scenes are him acknowledging the fact that he's completely disconnected as a person. The the scene where he keeps getting instructions from the director and the translator keeps saying, but she keeps saying more intensity. He's like, that's it. That's the whole, that's all he's saying. That's, yeah. that's the whole, that five minute instruction he just gave. Like that's, that's a funny, his, his role in that scene is super funny. But it's also his him as a sad person saying, "Good Lord, I am not connected to anybody right now." Yeah, yeah, and those and it's it's a little uncomfortable to talk about, and we can kind of move into writing because that's what most of this is about. Is that I'm just going to admit there are scenes that are problematic in this movie that I found entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> so, especially given where we are politically now, like. Yes, right. there are definite problems here and there are definite things in those sequences, like especially when we're just like, you know, flipping consonants like that's that's the height of humor here where we're just like, you know, it's the standard Asian stereotype accent. But there are moments in there, especially that bit you just talked about where someone says something for 90 seconds in another language and you get two words from the translator. And I think mm-hmm. that stuff is always going to be funny no matter what the language is. Yeah. You I don't know? think there's anything. I don't think there's anything aggressively malintentioned there, at all. I think that's just the, the joke in that situation is a bad translator, right? And again, I just so your readers know because they or listeners know because they probably can't tell. I'm white as fuck, so <laughs> probably not the best barometer for this. But I know that there are problematic jokes in here. I know that that shower joke probably wouldn't have made the cut in 2017, right? Um, the Asian people have shorter showers. That was weird for me. Yep. Um, and there was a mispronunciation joke, was probably poorly conceived. That translation joke, the, the joke is the translator is not really translating. Right. So the, the and, joke is there is a divide and it's and it's kind of broken. Right. And th- and I think that's that's the point of all these jokes uh, in this sequence of him, you know, selling the whiskey is this pure disconnection. Like there is maybe one person in the room other than him that speaks English and there's still no connection there because she is, she is on that other side, you know, and he's just, and he's still disconnected. I think the one thing uh, that, that kind of got me the most as far as like, Oh, that would not have made it uh, nowadays. is the whole massage sequence where masseuse Mm -hmm. is sent to his hotel room and the whole, you know, the whole, like, rip my rip my stocking sequence. And it was like, I mean, it's like kind of a whole bunch of racist stuff rolled into one joke. Like, you have yeah. the mispronunciation, you have the over-sexualization, you know, you have, it's just a lot in that sequence. Right. And, I, and even me, I was, even me as also a person who is white as fuck, I am sitting there watching it going like, ooh, this is not, this is not working for me. And I knew what they were trying to get across. It's another moment of, like literally things being lost in translation. Like, I don't understand why this woman is in my room, what is supposed to be happening here. So you're supposed to get that disconnection. But I just kept thinking to myself, like, man, there has got to be another way <laughs> to get this. Uh, yeah. And there's two things happening there. There's, there's the racist delivery of the joke. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Bill Murray punchline. 
And the Bill Murray punchline's working for like I laughed at that scene and I didn't want to because Bill Murray's just like, what the hell? In the Bill Murray sense, the only Bill Murray could do where he just kind of sits and stares and exasperated. And yep. so it gets back to the theory where just like a lot of the things that Western world likes, they have problems. Right. And they need to be discussed, but you also need to admit that just because you enjoy them, they aren't ironed for problems because I still think that scene because the punchline is funny. I, I doesn't mean I don't understand that the delivery is terrible. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I think it's important. Like, like I think what you're getting at here is like, you can have things you enjoy that have problems. You just have to be able to discuss them just because something is quote unquote problematic. Doesn't mean it's a piece of garbage. And I see right. a lot of that kind of attitude of like, well, this thing is racist or sexist or homophobic, so automatically it has zero value. Uh, and right. I just I just don't agree with that way of looking at things. I think there's Holy a God. way to bring it all in. One thing I really liked uh, in that sequence uh, with, the, with the translator and with the more intensity, I love that one of the only connections he has with anyone there is through pop culture. Like someone brings up the Rat Pack. And that's something mm -hmm. he can actually connect to. And I found that really interesting that this man who is a Hollywood actor, both in the movie and as an actor, as Bill Murray himself, the only connection he has with anyone who lives in this country is still something that's connected from Western culture. Yeah. And they do it with Bond, too, right? Is that the right. same sequence? Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, well, they do the mispronunciation with Roger Moore. Yes. But um, and then he goes, you don't have, you don't, you didn't get Sean Connery over here. Right. Like, yeah, because it. It kind of it kind of does. It lends to that whole universal language of of Western art. Like Western art becomes a point of reference from which everybody can grow outward. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I like I like that's a really good sequence, isn't it? Yeah, it really. No, that's really two is. different sequences. I think I think that's two different sequences because there's the one on the couch and there's the one on the stool. Yeah, you're like, right. Two different sequences. But either way, it's the same concept both times. Like they don't bridge the gap until they have cinematic or pop culture value to to walk across. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, the other thing that that I keep thinking about this movie when it comes to the writing is when I look at just the dialogue, I feel like this shouldn't work. Like, right. <laughs> this stuff shouldn't work. But the performances from Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray are so naturalistic and so genuine that you could almost have them saying anything. And I think it would somehow work. But I also think it's a really well-written script. These conversations feel – even if they don't feel quote-unquote realistic – they are carried in such a way that we are immediately bonded to these two characters. And I think mm -hmm. if that doesn't happen, this movie falls flat on its face. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's anything in terms of dialogue writing that makes this movie an immediate... This, like, you always start asking about direction. And up front, we should have stated this This movie is 75% direction, 23% yeah. performance. Like, mm -hmm. that's just how this movie works. Um, But because, yeah, you like... It's the basic, most bare bones script that you could imagine. It's organic, which mm -hmm. is fine, but I think organic is um, achieved through um, achieved through more expressiveness than dialogue. Right. Um, and I would be interested to see just how long this script was because I can't imagine <laughs> other than stage like direction. Twenty seven pages. Like it's yeah. <laughs> I also want to see what that first opening sequence says. Like Scarlett Johansson just laying on the bed in a sweet ass pair of underwear. Like. <laughs> Who wrote that script? Was that Coppola? Because I want to see the language she used there. Because right. how many, how many, okay, how many movies that ultimately end up as a really good movie 
take such a sharp nosedive from the opening sequence down in terms of quality. Because that first opening sequence is amazing. Yep. It's, it's amazing for anybody who loves The Shape of Women. But Yeah, I think it's it's great that you brought that up. Because under direction, my first note was just opening shot. And I, for the yeah. life of me, couldn't remember what I was trying to reference. And now as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, the ass. Yeah. That's what I was yes. referencing. It is quite like, an opening shot. The- I saw that sequence and I'm like, how the fuck did I live to the age of 21 when this was out there? Like, I can't believe I survived that year when this opening (laughs) sequence was out there. I can think of one movie before the devil knows you're dead that, and if you've ever watched that movie, the opening scene is amazing and the rest of the movie is really good, but there's still a sharp decline from that opening (laughs) sequence. I think the other thing I like as far as this script is, you know, you have all these moments with these two characters and you always... You're always wanting them to be together, which is, I think, a stroke of genius that you have these sequences with him talking to his wife at home, always Mm -hmm. after he has left Charlotte's side, where you really, you feel this, and I think it helps you feel the pull of them together, because she is, you know, his situation at home is clearly not the best. It's not as if this his wife at home has done anything terrible or she's this terrible yeah. person. It's just like, you feel that malaise, you feel that boredom, you feel that stagnancy. And it's the exact opposite of everything he's experiencing in Japan. And I think that stuff really works. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, she's able to create that seemingly physical distance just through tellers of cinematic value, through facial expressions, sounds, um, the filtering of the sound through the phone delivery. Mm-hmm. Like the, the way that this movie creates that lonely distance to build the social intimacy is just, it's astonishing. Blew me away. This movie blew me away this time when I was watching it. So we need to talk a little bit about production value, because uh, mm-hmm. I've never been to Japan, and I don't know if this is accurate, but I was just mm-hmm. so stunned at these kind of opening shots of the city. Like, not only like how busy it is, how beautiful it is, but just how how foreign it is like mm-hmm. you, when you, as soon as those shots happen, like I don't need any overlay. I don't need any background. I know that we are not in the United States anymore. Like this is not a big city. Like I'm used to, this is not LA. This is not Chicago. This is not New York. So you immediately get the sense of that kind of otherness. As soon as those shots happen, like you don't even need anyone to speak with an accent. You don't need to, to show like Tokyo, Japan at the bottom of the screen. It's just like immediate. And I was so impressed by that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it it does create, and this again, this this you know directly peripheral to the things we were talking about earlier about the problematic elements. But fish out of water stories are hard, and mm-hmm. if you want to create a fish out of water story for the Western world, you have to transplant it in a place that's recognizably foreign. Um, and it does this really well. And in terms of infrastructure and and um, lighting and even pop culture to a degree, but also just general layout of the city. It does that. It looks like another place immediately. Like Bill Murray's in another place. Mm-hmm. And, um, and does that rather well. Um, and it, and it uses that to its benefit in terms of aesthetic very well too, because I think it takes, are they in Tokyo and where are they at? I think they're in Tokyo. I've been okay. avoiding saying it, but I'm pretty sure they were in Tokyo. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's Tokyo. It's Tokyo. Okay, yeah. good. Well, I mean, we've already told all your listeners of color how racism works, so we might as well just <laughs> thank goodness we're here to it. to white explain that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, white explain pop culture. White explains. What did you call this? Um, 
Yeah, it is Tokyo. It is. And and it uses the architecture of Tokyo to an, to a very functional aesthetic degree in a way that a lot of American movies don't use American landscape landscape and architecture to its functional degree. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. Like there's a there's, if she if she bobbles the handling of Japanese culture, she at least utilizes her appreciation for Tokyo architecture and the physicality and aesthetic of the city to the purpose of her story with great admiration and respect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The scene, um, and maybe this isn't sincere. If any of your listeners think that this is, that's, I would, I would love to be corrected on it. Um, but the scene where she's walking through the flower garden, do you remember this? Yes. Oh, man, how wonderful, beautiful the scene is. That? Yeah. It's stunning. I mean, it's, yeah. there are a couple sequences in this movie. Like you mentioned watching this movie without sound on accident and you, not that you don't notice, but you almost don't care. Because yeah. it is such a good-looking movie. And this is someone, Sofia Coppola, who has not made that many movies. It's not like she's a no. Woody Allen type who makes a movie a year. Like, so she, and this is relatively early in, in her, early in her career. I mean, I guess kind of everything is still early for her right now. But it's just right. that, that confidence behind the camera to just, to just kind of show this beauty. And I, I think, like you said, like, she is not... She's not great, and we'll talk about this when we talk about looking forward to The Beguiled. Like, she's probably not the best person if you're going to talk about cultural sensitivity. But she right. is the best person when you're talking about – like, this This story was apparently, like, relatively autobiographical. Um, so you could – and I think you can feel that. You could feel that personal touch to this. And I think that's why the kind of – the Japanese culture in here is is seen even maybe more – more other than it would be with another white director. Uh, but, right. but she does get the feel of the city well, even if she doesn't get the people well. Right. If she doesn't get it, she at least has good intentions with it. Yeah. And, and, and admires it and makes it admirable. Like we both pointed, I don't know if I agreed with you, but I've never been, to, I've never been to any Asian countries, uh, which is why I started getting paranoid about you bringing on me here for a progressive <laughs> trap. But but there's something is there's something astonishingly, and maybe it, I I don't even want to say it's othering because I don't think that's fair because it, it she just there's just an admiration of the setting of this movie that Western film often lacks. Mm-hmm. I don't think it otherizes it. I don't think so. I'm happy to be corrected. Again, I'm on Twitter. I'm not going to be giving my <laughs> handle after all the weird binds we tread this time. <laughs> but I'm on Twitter. Find me. And she's had it in her other movies too since then. The way that she admires the setting of her movie mm-hmm. and adores it non-judgmentally, and then applies it to her story, and and I love that's my favorite thing about this movie is the way that she does that. Yeah, I mean it's 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 hard to it's hard to add to that, and it's something you kind of brought up at the beginning when you talked about direction. It's just the kind of the construction of this movie is so detail oriented. It's so kind of wonderful that it that it's it strikes you and it moves you even before you get to the character beats which are also impressive and and there's not very many movies out there that you could say that about that you could like remove the characters for a bit and just and just watch the visuals and be kind of stunned by it like yeah. that that's a rarity one of my favorite things in this movie and I don't know though have a comfortable place to inject this is positioning within a hotel bed mm. and how much of the story is told that way when when so there are, I think there are a couple of times where Charlotte and Bob lay in a bed together mm-hmm. um, and they always lay at a distance and it's um, yep. and it's and there's always a gap between them. And there's a time when Charlotte lays in a bed with uh, whoever Giovanni Rabisi plays her husband in this movie. I don't remember his name. John. John. Yeah. And, and John like 
envelopes her and wraps her in his arms in the bed. And somehow, and then there are scenes where they both play in the bed alone. And somehow, if you rank those scenes in the presentation of space within the bed, of which ones feel most intimate and which ones feel most alone, right? The the most intimate are the ones where there's a gap between Bill Murray and Charlotte Johansson. Yep. The most alone are the ones where Jean's enveloping her in the bed. Yeah. And and that's just simple boxing and framing. That's all that yeah. is. And and somehow using the space of a clean, sterile high class hotel bed sheet as yep. a cinematic device for for any of those images you could screenshot and say look at this painting of people in a bed right. it's either person alone or people who are touching but not in love or people who are not touching and, and sharing a uh, simplistic kind of love yeah absolutely all right so now we're going to move to to favorite scenes so the the first thing i think of uh, honestly, when it, when favorite scenes comes up for this is Bob and Charlotte have this really interesting discussion about kids, about having kids mm-hmm. because they, they have such different life experiences, which is something I absolutely love about their interactions is that, I mean, it could easily be seen and I've heard this kind of experience of it, that it's creepy, this like older guy and this younger girl. And I, I could guarantee you that if this was directed by a man, uh, I think that that reaction would be much, much stronger if you have this man directing and writing this film about this, like, aging Hollywood star who hooks up with this, you know, 20-year-old woman. It's, you know, it's iffy already. But they kind of talk about how complicated life gets when you have kids. And as I was watching this, of course, for the first time, I thought, oh, this is when he's going to be like, oh, don't ever have kids. This is terrible. You know, I wish I had my youth back. It gets a whole lot more complicated when you have kids. Yeah, it's scary. It's the most terrifying day of your life, the day the first one is born. Yeah. Nobody ever tells you that. Your life, as you know it, is gone. Never to return. But they learn how to walk and they learn how to talk and... And you want to be with them. And they turn out to be the most delightful people you will ever meet in your life. Mm, that's nice. And I thought, like, what a wonderful turn that this took. Yeah. Because it started off like, oh, my God, it's it's awful, it's terrifying, I have all this stuff going on at home. But then he switches it, and it's just like, yeah, but it's also really great. And I like that there's no there's no clear answer in that sequence. And she's just kind of taking this all in, and it just kind of ends with Charlotte saying, that's nice. And I mm. love that little moment. It's one of my favorite moments of intimacy in the entire film. That's funny because my favorite scene in the movie is selected because of the intimacy that landed with me. It's the scene where they, uh, Jean and Charlotte go out to dinner with um, the rapper and oh, um, yes. Anna Ferris. And, and I, it's not obtrusive. It's not hammered upon, but just a couple of points of eye contact and one weird joking gesture from Bill Murray. Mm -hmm. And this is before they've even gotten to know each other. They haven't said anything yet. And him reaching out to her to let you know, yeah, I know what it's like to be alone around others. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite scene in the movie because at that point in the conversation, the rapper's telling her, um, and then I put a gap between it and then I go, and he does his beatbox and she just, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to connect with that the way that her husband is, 
pretending to connect with these things for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, they're 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 uh, social people. They're antisocial people. None more complex than the other. Um, her and her husband seem to be in two separate groups of that. And the intimacy of Bill Murray sitting where he's sitting to let her know it's okay that you feel this way. Like it feels like there's a million more words in that scene between the two of them. Oh yeah. I mean, talk about what you talked about earlier, that kind of in between. And that's exactly what I was referencing is you can have a scene like there is dialogue in that scene, but none of it between these two characters. And there is a thousand times more intimacy between uh, between Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray in that scene with a look and a simple hand gesture than there is with this nonsense conversation going on yeah. at the table. And it's such a and it's like it's funny and it's cute, but it's a genuinely powerful moment between yeah. these two kind of outcasts, these two people who don't really connect with other people, and you really feel it between them at that moment. You do. And and, and again, it's funny because you know, intimacy is a precursor to a relationship. The intimacy is there for the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, arguably, some would say when they recognize they're both American, like a couple of racists in the elevator, they do right. the they do the sideways glance and say, "Hey, American! Hey, hey American! Hey, another white person! Hey, yeah, yeah. yeah I <laughs> see you." Um, but I mean, intimacy is the foundation of the relationship that they build, for better or worse. Yeah. Um, so it's so it's always the thing speaking, and it's always the thing that sounds complex, but yeah. In the end, it's just it's just intimacy, which is, you know, the theme here. But anyone who's ever had it recognizes it without being told that's what it is. Yeah. So before we move into the theme, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the, the end of this movie, because that's what that's the only thing, honestly, I had ever really heard about this movie is like, oh, right. the end, the whisper, the blah, 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 the kiss, all that. Um, I found myself as far as the everyone's like, oh, what did he say? And I found myself not giving a shit. What right. he said, like, it became totally unimportant. It was, I mean, I like the fact that we don't know if they're going to see each other again. Like, I could see this going either way. Like, they could go their own yeah. separate ways and never meet again. Or they could meet again years later and pick this up. And and who knows? But I, I took it less as, I mean, it is a romantic moment, for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it wasn't about that. To me, it was about this connection that these two people had built over this week or two weeks or however long this had been going on. And it coming to this this moment of needing a powerful physical connection between these two people. And that really worked for me. Like I found myself almost tearing up in that moment. Like this is this is something that has been building and not in this way of like, oh, there's been all this flirtation and they just need to they just need to do this and get it over with. But it was just like it was just a a beautiful simple physical interaction of all these intimate moments co- finally come to a head. Well, I'm curious. I know you were, that was your way of leading me into talking about this, but I'm more curious from your perspective because I know that the whisper and lost in translation is part of cultural currency. Now it's Ugh. the, the indie film worlds. Yes. No, I am your father. Like that's, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. So people know what it means. They know that it, it carries weight and even, and I know you said this is the first time watching your movie, but I, bad that you knew about the whisper scene for the last 10 years definitely um and you said you didn't care what it what it said i know you saw it coming Mm -hmm. at what point did you realize that like that you didn't care what the whisper was did you know as soon as it started like oh my god this is amazing or was it afterwards when you're like i don't care what he said that was so well acted yeah like had the movie earned your disregard for the cultural currency of that moment before the scene started or because of the power of the scene uh, for me, it was before the scene started. Yeah. Um, I, ju- I just think the this movie, like you 
you honestly could take out everything but these two characters' interactions, and it works so well. So at that point, like I'm, I'm already sold yeah. as as this scene begins. Like no matter what happens, whether they could turn the volume up and you hear what he said, it would probably be just as moving as him just whispering. And it's another intimate moment. Like there's yeah. there's very little that is an, as, as intimate as close as leaning into someone's ear and telling them something that's just for them. And I think that's the point of that moment. It's not about what he said. It's about the fact that he said it to her. Yeah. And just to really to really strike the highlighter across this, that shit right there is great movie making. Yeah. Like, not just, not just that she chose to go with an indecipherable whisper, but that, that the sound design and production and framing and distance of the camera – I'll lean in that moment to the content of the whisper not being important yep. and the acting like that's an intersection of magical movie making because we made a joke about it since then. It's been a joke for 10 years. It'll be a joke forever. What a Bill Murray whisper in her ear and we can do, you know, you and I joked about this, that we're just going to talk for 60 minutes about guesses at what he whispered in her ear. Right. <laughs> but in the moment when you're watching it, all the elements of this movie come together in the immersive experience of this movie, it's just a powerful intersection of two characters getting what they need from one another and watching, actively watching the movie. You don't give a shit about what he said in her ear. Yep. And that that's insane that that works because I can't right. think of another movie where you take the climactic line and erase it where this, right. you just completely erase it where the movie still works. But when you're watching this movie and you're submitting yourself to this movie in the way that the movie requests that you submit yourself and earned your submission, it doesn't matter what he says to her in that moment. Because I agree with you. I've always made jokes about the whisper in that movie. Watching it this time, the 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 measurement of everything in that movie, the distance that the camera was away from them, where he put his hand on her head, and the way that she cried she she got teary eyed and sad and cried a little bit, but she didn't bawl. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was measured so that this yeah. mo- moment worked in a way that it shouldn't, which is a moment of, of cinematic magic in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I can't say it any better than that. Uh, so let's move to the theme. So, you know, I kind of gave you the theme of social intimacy and then you, and then you watched the movie. So what effect did that have as you were watching the movie and what stood out to you as far as the theme? I don't know that my experience watching the movie would have been different, not knowing the theme beforehand. Um, cause it is just an intimate movie. So you found the right theme. It's almost full empathy and no logic when you think about this. Mm. You, you, this movie makes you feel the history of your own intimacy, the times in your life where an abstract connectedness to another person that you can't really map out on paper. Um, and you get how many of these in your lifetime, honestly. Right. Like, how many times in your lifetime do you feel that necessary connectedness at the right moment? And that's what this movie makes you feel. It's nostalgic and hopeful because you hope to feel that again sometime in your life. Right. Um, and it creates all this through cinematic architecture. So, yeah, I think it really captures that emotion, which is really difficult to pin down that that feeling. Like, I think we've all been there in our lives where we feel like, oh, no one really understands me. I'm so mm-hmm. I'm so different from everyone else. And, and the kind of the Asian culture is a stand in for that, which is, you know, yeah. questionable. 
Uh, but we've all felt that. Even if we are surrounded by people that, quote unquote, look like us and are from our same background, there's still times in our life when we feel disconnected. And then whether it's a friendship or a relationship or a family member, when we really connect with someone, when we really tie ourselves to someone because we are similar or they get us or whatever it is, it's powerful. And I think right. you really get that through the social intimacy of these two characters because – I love that the beginning of this movie kind of starts after that amazing opening shot that you talked about mm -hmm. with these two, with these two characters alone in their rooms, separate from everyone, just kind of listening to the world and almost being annoyed by it. Like, just like, oh, God, this is so exhausting, this outside world that, that doesn't understand me and I don't understand it. So once these two people connect, even if it's over something that is, you know, sometimes you can connect through disconnection, like the idea that like no one gets us and we're going to connect together. And I don't think this movie puts it that clear, but I think these people are so separate from everyone else in their lives. So it's like it's magical when these two yeah. people come together and like even without talking about it and putting it on the table, like just enjoy one another and connect with one another so easily. And that's intoxicating to watch. Yeah. And, and the backdrop to that, it's an old you know, it's an old cliche, but probably the, in some ways the loneliest place in the world is a hotel room. Mm -hmm. And it, the movie pulls them apart and pushes them together inside of a hotel. You see their most their loneliest moments in the hotel, their best moments coming together. If you've ever spent time in a hotel room, you know that by yourself, you know that feeling. Right. Or with a person you're not connecting with. If you've ever been in a hotel room with someone you're not connecting with, the feeling is equally strong as we see in the scene where – uh, Jean and envelopes are in the hotel and it's just not there. It's not there. It's just a lonely place. It's a rootless, it's a rootless, transient place of fleeting existence. Yeah. That's what the hotel room is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, and the movie uses that, again, that setting in juxtaposition against its characters togetherness. Um, and it's just, it's a very poetic movie. It's, it's insane. It uses, simple expressions simple simple cinematic expressions to create to bring together movie movie magic in a moment that shouldn't work yeah it's very intimate it's very yeah it's a good theme now you got me all choked up all right nice i i'm glad i picked the right theme that always you did always makes me happy um so yeah just to kind of close this out like this this is a movie that of course i'd meant to watch for years at this point like a decade and it is one of those movies that i kind of had a it it felt like my kind of movie it felt like something i would enjoy so i'm glad i finally got a chance to watch this because this is a movie i as soon as i watched it i kind of immediately wanted to watch it again uh because right. there's like you mentioned the kind of construction of this movie there's so much going on that i know that i missed and i kind of can't wait to go back and watch this again. So I would yeah. urge people, like, if you're, like, I, there can't be many of us, but if you haven't seen this movie and you've gotten all the way through this this podcast, I don't think anything we've talked about kind of ruins the movie because so much of it is visual. And I would highly urge you to to watch it, especially if you can kind of keep the, the problematic elements separate. Like, I think I, it's, there's very few movies I say, say this about, but like, this is, this is something that, that is moving and something that is not quote unquote, just a movie. Like I think you talking about it being poetic is kind of perfect. Like this does mm -hmm. feel more like a poem than it does a narrative story. And I think movies that do that well are kind of a gift. And I'm so glad I got to finally experience that. Let me, let me add that if you have, I agree with your advice. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. But if it's been so long that you've seen it, that all you remember is the whisper, whisper scene and the underwear scene, right. go watch the stuff in the middle. Right. Like, 
there's a lot of good stuff in between that. Yeah. Not that that not that that underwear or the whisper scene is bad stuff because those are amazing. That's amazing <laughs> stuff. That's that's why we invented cameras. Let's be honest. Yeah. Very very true. Yeah. All right. So the reason we were talking about this is because uh, this this week, I mean, depending on where you are and release schedules and limited releases and film festivals, who knows when things come out anymore. But we will be covering uh, Sofia Coppola's newest movie, The Beguiled. Uh, and this is another movie that's already been uh, been uh, slapped with the label problematic. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's interesting that I'm glad I didn't like pick something of Sofia Coppola's that wasn't problematic for this episode because now it's like an easy transition But this is set during kind of Reconstruction, uh, like, you know, during and right after the Civil War, and she has kind of removed a black character from from the original story. So people are up in arms about that, about representation, about, you know, all of that, all that stuff that is necessary and important. But like, God bless Sofia Coppola, but I don't really need her doing stories about the black experience during the Civil War. Like, I just don't think that is in her wheelhouse and that's something that she should be taking on. So I'm actually really excited to see The Beguiled. I was excited since I saw the first trailer, which feels like nine years ago now that that came Mm -hmm. out. But like with this cast, especially with kind of this resurgence of not necessarily Nicole Kidman's career, but the way we think about her career, because I think she's been secretly doing great work for like the last decade and a half oh for sure that that people haven't really picked up on and actually there's a great article up now on audiences everywhere that i think i think becky wrote right about yeah you know yeah and it's phenomenal and and really kind of should be required reading at this point for nicole kidman's career because she's been doing great great work so since seeing the trailer i was kind of like man i am so in this looks fantastic because i don't I know some of what's it, what it's about through the visuals, but it kind of could be about anything. So I am, this is one of the movies uh, that I'm most looking forward to this year. So I am, as you would say, hyped for The Beguiled. What about you? Are you looking forward to seeing this? I want to be honest with you. I keep th- seeing his name thrown about, The Beguiled. Um, you invited me on the show to talk Lost in Translation. I hadn't seen Lost in Translation for so many years. I've seen the other Sofia Coppola movies. Um, I hadn't encountered the trailer for The Beguiled mm. until two nights ago. Okay. And I watched it in preparation for this show. And my first reaction was, that's not very intimate. That's, <laughs> no. That's my first. That's going to be hard. Dave and I are going to have to take a very strong right turn into that one. Yeah. Um, I'm super excited about it. I know you, you said Becky had written the Nicole Kidman piece. Nicole was in con a few weeks ago. Um, and Becky is very excited for The Beguiled. She's... <laughs> She's stuck her stake in this movie and said no one's reviewing this for but me. And she's very yeah. scary. So I just said, I sure, saw that. Yes. <laughs> take, take the knife off of my neck, please. Like you can have uh, it. Just it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm super hyped for this movie. I want to see uh, not a repetition of thematics here. I don't want to see that. I would like to see uh, the civil. Is it? The, it takes place in the South, right? It's in the yes. Confederate South. I want to see the Confederate South used in app in application for a feminist revenge story. Yeah. I know that there's the problematic issue now that they don't even like bring in like the slave element of the civil war South. But, um, but I am of the mindset that like Sophia Coppola isn't the right person to take on that narrative. No. Um, and I think it's good that she's stepping up again. White as fuck. I think it's good that Sophia Coppola isn't licensing herself to talk about the slave experience of the Confederate Civil War. Right. Um, particularly given what we saw in Lost in Translation, she did with the Japanese culture. So in the vacuum of 
this singular movie. I'm very excited to see this. I've seen one trailer. I don't know which trailer it was. I watched one trailer in preparation for this, and I said I'm not watching another trailer because I don't want to mm-hmm. know anything. Yep. Um, you mentioned Becky's article. Nicole Kidman is in a renaissance right now. It's every bit as powerful as what Matthew McConaughey did two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I would argue 100% less necessary because she's always been great. Yes. Absolutely. And so I'm super excited to see this movie on the limited information that I snuck into myself in preparation for this podcast, which I'm almost mad that I did because I wish I went into this blind now. Mm. Um, I like to ruin things for you. It's good. Yes, it's that's okay. You gave me the <laughs> you gave me the introduction to my future podcast today. So there you go. <laughs> so yeah, I'm super excited about it. I love it, and yeah. and you're right. Um, it uh, it's Sofia Coppola. It's Nicole Kidman coming together. It's going to be awesome. And I also like, you know, just to bring up the the one kind of male character in this in this film. I'm I'm just Colin Farrell has always been really interesting to me. I remember um, I remember seeing him in Minority Report when that first mm-hmm. came out and thinking that guy's going to be a fucking movie star. Like that was my first thought. And of course, that is not what has happened. But what no. has happened is something way more interesting. Is that he's become like a Hollywood character actor superstar throughout his career it's been yeah. really interesting like if you look at in bruges if you look at last year's the lobster if you look at uh, what was the the movie the country music movie uh crazy uh, heart crazy heart like just some really interesting roles so i'm really it's gonna be it's gonna be kind of uh kind of interesting to see where his career goes because he's at this interesting level where he's not like a leading man necessarily mm. anymore but he is really known, and he is a known commodity and someone you want to watch. So it'll be interesting to see how this like very female-centric story is handled from, from his character's perspective, too. So I'm looking forward to that. I want to pull back for a second. Okay. I want to make your show run long this week. Go for it. I fucking love Colin Farrell. Yeah? And I'm going to tell you why. Exactly why you said because he's never been in a hurry to get off that line between superstar actor and Andy Darling. Yep. He's straddled that line for years, and... I'm going to give you a few examples. You gave some good examples. And Bruges is a great example of his performance. And he's also had his movie star moments. And, and, but then he's done The Lobster. So those are the examples you've given. If you ever watch the Terrence Malick movie, A New World, hmm. Colin Farrell gives the best performance maybe ever in a Terrence Malick movie. And that's hmm. saying a lot as John Smith. Um, he's also in the, uh, I think it's Joel Schumacher. Shit. I should know that. I think it's Joel Schumacher. If it's not take Joel Schumacher's name out of the podcast, uh, <laughs> In the movie Phone Booth? Is that Joel Schumacher? Yeah, that is Joel Schumacher. Yeah. Good. Nice. Leave it in. Take the part out where I didn't know. <laughs> Pretend like I'm confident. It's fine. He, he's amazing in Phone Booth, and he's also amazing in a little Irish indie movie called Andy. Hmm. The guy has been doing, hitting every note that he's run headfirst into for about two decades. Yeah. And his, his patience in not establishing himself as a leading man, as a superstar, as a movie star, or as an indie darling, or as an actor, is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, for a guy who at first was just pegged as the Brad Pitt's replacement. Right. Kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he's been super cool. So I didn't even like think to include him in my anticipation for this movie. But that he does. His involvement heightens at 100%. Because everything he does, he does pitch perfectly. Mm-hmm. But because he does the line straddling, we don't realize it's pitch perfect because it's never loud. It's right. not loud what Colin Farrell does. Yeah. But what he does is always awesome. Yep. You know, and all and you know, throw in the fact that it's directed by Sofia Coppola, like she's yes. 
You know, honestly, I haven't seen all of her movies. I still need to watch uh, Marie Antoinette. That's actually what we're watching for Brit's uh, film education that week. And I haven't seen it either. But like, honestly, like, I mean, a lot of people shit on movies like The Bling Ring. But I thought that was that was kind of a genius film. Like the what she did with that. Like, it's not a movie I ever want to rewatch. Uh, because right. it is so dour and so mm-hmm. kind of it kind of takes a shit on humanity for two hours. Uh, right. But like she's made some really like every movie that I've seen of hers is at least very good. So she's one of those directors who has earned my trust at this point. So like you want to put Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell in a Sofia Coppola movie. Like give me my ticket now. I'm ready. Let me also double plug here. Um, uh, the article that you were talking about, that was Nicole Kidman that Becky wrote, Becky Belzil. Um that was Becky. That was we have a segment of our website that we've reserved uh, mm-hmm. called Cinema Saints, which was our answer to the completely bitter and misguided uh, Cinema Sins YouTube oh. channel. It's like everything bad about film criticism. Yeah. All in one video. Yep. Yeah. So we we inverted that and said, here are people who don't get celebrated enough. and Here are the reasons they aren't celebrated enough. Mm-hmm. And in the past few weeks, we've inducted into our Hall of Cinema Saints, both Nicole Kidman in the article Becky wrote. And Sofia Coppola in the article, uh, uh, Tyler Heberly. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I've never talked to him in, outside of text, but I think it's Heberly. Tyler Heberly wrote a really amazing article about Sofia Coppola's use of um, form in the purpose of function. Because mm-hmm. people always say form or function. He wrote a great article about Sofia Coppola of uh, Coppola, excuse me, Sofia Coppola's uh, f- form feeding her function. Mm-hmm. Really great article. So the, both Sofia Coppola and Nicole Kidman have been added to our Cinema Saints Hall in the last few weeks, and I would encourage readers to read both because they're both magnificent pieces. Nice. I think that's the perfect way to end. Everyone should go to audienceseverywhere.net uh, and check out. There's, I mean, it's a huge site. Uh, if you just want to read my work, that's that's fine. I'm on there too. Please uh, go check that out. But there are many, many more talented writers on that site, and it's a, a site I read. Uh, even even if I wasn't a part of it, I would read it. Uh, and there's just some great, great stuff on there. So go and check that out. So why don't you and tell... If you're, if you're listening to this in 2019, it's it's twobrilliantdaves.net. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so do you want to give people uh, your Twitter information so they can sure. hound you about your, uh, your horrible opinions that you've espoused sure. on Pop Culture Case Study? Absolutely. I'm willing to fight anybody on my opinions. But if there's anything that I said that was problematic on this case, I'm... I'm, I'm a, I try to be a malleable ally. So if I've said anything in in the way of uh, the problematic elements of Lost in Translation, just come correct me. I'm not going to fight with you. Um, my name is uh, A-E underscore David S, I think. That's correct. It, is it right? Okay. Yeah. So on Twitter, I'm A-E underscore David S. Please come correct me if I've said anything about representation or problematics in Lost in Translation. I'm not going to fight you about that. Anything else, just bring the fight with your knives sharpened because I'm very um, – snarky and sharp as dave that's right i'm in that population i will say if you're gonna come at if you're gonna come at dave you better come strong like that's (laughs) he will defend himself so yeah uh, if it's anything other than social issues or social justice come strong because i'm really good at the rest of this stuff that's right but in terms of social issues and social justice i'm just a learner i'm just trying to learn and be a good ally so um but yeah i'm a underscore david s my website is we talk movies one word at we talk movies on twitter um, we have Facebook. You guys can hunt that down. You're smarter than I am. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So there's lots of ways you can help out the show. We've actually been doing really well lately, but I'd like to kind of continue that trend. So tell your friends about Pop Culture Case Study. Uh, make them listen to it. That's definitely the way to push podcasts on people. Or you can follow me on Twitter at PC Case Study. You can go to the the network webpage, which is followingfilms.com, and you can check out other great movie podcasts. You can listen to some great film interviews on the Following Films podcast. Or you can listen to the True Bromance Film Podcast, where you can listen to Barry and Hiro have some drinks and talk movies and have a really great time. And if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash study. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And there what you can do is actually donate your hard-earned dollars to this podcast on a per-episode basis. And when you do that, you can get some really great rewards along with supporting an independent podcast. Also, when episodes come out early, you get the first crack at them. Um, so sometimes you will get an episode two or three days earlier than the rest of the general public. All right, so the next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review on Sofia Coppola's newest film, The Beguiled. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. As it were, the two women who I invited are both surviving and all the men are gone. Yeah, that's fitting. Yeah. We're weak. We no. just like drop like flies. Like I follow a lot of acclaimed critics who drive me fucking nuts yep. with their pettiness. Like yes. Oh, I can't believe I didn't get a screener until this till Wednesday. I'm like, really motherfucker grow up. Some people have cancer. Special.